A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible Irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hi, I'm Helen Erickson, and you're listening to Sorry Partner. Hello and welcome to Sorry Partner, a podcast about bridge and all things interesting to bridge players, brought to you by bridge partners and friends, Catherine Harris and Jocelyn Starts. On today's program, we talk with English champion Helen Erickson about the essential questions to ask a new partner, the ways in which bridge is good for the soul, and how bridge plays a starring role in her latest whodunit, Murder by Natural Causes. Plus, she shares her top tip for developing players. But first, let's kibitz. Hi, partner. Hi, Catherine. How are you? Jocelyn, I'm very well, thanks. How are you? I'm doing well. You know, I've been thinking about this thing that I observed when I was playing with you in London, and it happened at all of the clubs that we played in, which is that after the auction, the players leave their bidding cards out on the table until the opening leader has selected their card to lead. And I really liked that. I guess it's an actual rule in England to do so. And I've actually been telling people at my club here in San Francisco about that. And people are really into it. And so we've started doing it. And I don't think that our rules speak to it. People just seem to scoop up their bidding cards as soon as the auction goes past, 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 and then they're put away. But I'm not sure that there's any reason why people can't just leave their bidding cards out until the opening leader goes. I mean, I just think that's a really sensible thing to do. Yeah, I, I mean, what's not to like? Though I will say, if you have got used to not having the cards out in that way, maybe it's better for your memory and your training to have internalized the auction and not be dependent on seeing. Or rather, I think I'm, I'd worry that if you got used to seeing the auction and dependent on seeing the auction in that way, you may lose the skill of retaining it. I can see that. That makes sense. And of course, you can always ask for a review of the auction. Yeah. And I know of some people who always ask for a review of the auction sort of automatically because it just helps them get it ingrained in their memory so they can retrieve it perhaps during the play more easily. But it seems like it would be similarly helpful to just have them out on the table, it's probably a question of if you're a visual learner, you're going to really like to have the cards out on the table. If you're an auditory learner, then maybe a review of the auction is more helpful. 
Yeah, no, it's interesting. I mean, I, I can see that it's quite nice, though I have to tell you, it brings up this bridge trauma for me because I was playing this game, this is years ago, of course, against these really unpleasant people. And after every auction, they made this great show of scooping up the cards so quickly. But it wasn't just that they were doing it because that's how they did it. It felt really aggressive. Like they were really, I felt it was really pointed at me. They didn't want me to see or to have that visual memory of the auction, even though I could have asked for it. And it felt so hostile that that's just what I associate with that entire practice. Interesting. Interesting. So there's a lot, there's a lot more there perhaps than, than I realized. What about leaving the final contract in the middle of the table? Do you do that? No. Because in Australia, some clubs do that and some don't. And I don't know what the rule is about that. So they'll scoop up all the auction, but they'll leave the the actual, you know, yes, the four hearts or the six no trouble, whatever it is, in the middle of the table until the first lead's made, then they put it away. Yeah, no. No, people no. just scoop them right up. I have seen people, you know, if they're sitting north, for example, they have the bridge mate with them and they might keep pressing the bridge mate to remind themselves what the contract is. Yeah. But only the North person gets really the access to the bridge mate. So that's not always so readily available. I'll write it right away on my score sheet what the contract is. But yeah. <laughs> I've seen people pressing the bridge mate. It never occurred to me that's what they were doing. Yeah. That's absolutely what they're doing. Like you can't remember it. You have to, I mean, they, this one woman I'm thinking of, she just always would be pressing the button, you know, just constantly, constantly. We'd like to give a shout out to the Harrisburg Bridge Club for their 75th anniversary. The club was founded in 1948 by five friends and they now have 411 members and it is very exciting. So congratulations to the Harrisburg Bridge Club for 75 wonderful years. Woohoo! And thanks to Midge for bringing this to us. And many thanks to our supporters like Midge for getting behind us with their Patreon support. We have introduced advertising into the show because we're trying to find a way to keep ourselves afloat, but we really need that support from our listeners. So if you are able to get behind us, it would mean a huge amount. And we recognize that the ads are perhaps a bit jarring. We've introduced them recently after having the show go without ads for all this time, but we didn't really have a choice. And it's part of the model that a lot of podcasts have adopted. And again, if you're a subscriber, if you're a Patreon supporter, you get ad-free episodes. So if the ads bother you, please consider supporting the show and we'll hook you up with the ad-free episodes. Thank you very much. Very exciting mailbag this week, Jocelyn. <laughs> I've been so looking forward to hearing the latest batch. The latest batch, which includes regular mail and limerick mail. Okay, well, I sort of feel like the limericks are kind of like dessert. So can we have regular mail first? We most certainly can. And this week we have heard from Alan in California. Hey, Alan. Hi, Alan. Alan writes, your recent stories about penalty cards reminds me of a time when I was running a long suit and one opponent discarded. I knew they had another card in that suit from earlier plays, so I checked and they found that other card to follow suit. We summoned the director who ruled the mistaken discard a penalty card. I then led another card in my long suit and the opponent, forgetting they had a penalty card, discarded something else, called the director again, who decreed that the penalty card had to be played and the new card became a new penalty <laughs> card. <laughs> it never stops. <laughs> then I switched to the suit of the penalty card and this opponent, again, forgetting they had a penalty card, <laughs> played something else. Three director calls on three tricks. Luckily, it was a low-stakes club game and there was lots of laughter. 
My favourite bridge story, though, is the time I was glad to be passed in a bit. This was at another club game with a fairly new partner. Left-hand opponent dealt and opened one club. Partner overcalled one spade and third hand did something. One no trump, I think. I had a pretty good hand with spade support, so I cubid two clubs. Open a passed and my partner thought and thought and thought. Eventually he passed and I ended up playing it in two clubs. It turned out the partner had meant to overcall one heart but had pulled the wrong card from his bidding box and didn't realise it until too late. He figured that anything he did later would lead to an unmakeable spade contract and he had four decent clubs, so two clubs seemed like the least of evils. I had a few clubs too, so it wasn't a total disaster and he was right. Any spade contract would be worse and possibly doubled, so I was glad he passed my cubit. Gosh. That is amazing. Amazing. Wow. Yes. Yes. (laughs) That is very funny. So moving on to the dessert tray now, Jocelyn. Limericks. (laughs) I love the limericks. (laughs) I know you do. Our first limerick is from Vince. And Vince has left us a voice message. So let's take a listen. There's a podcast from Harrison Starts. From this format, it's seldom departs. After lengthy emoting on the horrors of gloating, they rejoice because they've made seven hearts. <laughs> well, Vince, that's fantastic. Thank you. That's great. Thank you so much. And so to conclude our dessert course, Bill writes to us, Hi, Catherine and Jocelyn. I have been listening to the back episodes and one of my favorite parts of the funny stories from the guests and listeners. My favorite so far Ah, and he has expressed this to us in limerick form. Number one, the Queen of Trump episode. The declarer came from down under and he made a terrible blunder. So who did he blame when he made a false claim? The Trump queen had stolen his thunder. (laughs) I'm going to do one. The flying muffin. There was a bridge player named Joe Grew and the eight of spades is what he threw. The muffin went flying, and she started crying. So he bought dinner for the whole crew. Number three, Omar Sharif. The first set of boards he played better. Then arrived the infamous letter. Let's make this brief, said Omar Sharif, (laughs) and off to the room where he met her. Number four, the disheveled driver. At the bridge club, they were all thriving. From the men's room, he came a-driving. The table was leveled, because he was disheveled. And everyone else, they went diving. And number five, Bob Hammond Cannon. (laughs) Cantar thought the contract was easy. Partner's tummy felt very cheesy. Before the first trick, Bob Hammond got quick, and everyone felt kind of queasy. And finally, in honor of Catherine's deep research into the origins of schlamazel. The original rabbi's rule is when a defender has a singleton king, lead the ace. Now there's a corollary. Don't kvetch about Catherine. So here's the limerick. They questioned her use of schlamazel. She found the word origin fossil. She made them skittish, correcting their Yiddish. And then they became very docile. (laughs) So, if you have any fun stories about penalty cards or cubids becoming the final contract, or if you have any limericks to share, limericks about favorite episodes or other limericks, love the limericks. Please do send them to us or leave us a voice message. The links are on the website at sorrypartner.com, along with some other good stuff. Coming up next, our interview with Helen Erickson. English champion Helen Erickson took home gold in the 2005 European Mixed Teams, won the 2016 Great Northern Swiss Pairs, 
was part of a team that took home the 2017 Lady Milne Trophy, won the 2020 Norwegian Mixed Teams, and won two bronze medals at the 2023 Open European Championships, one for the Mixed Teams Border Match and one for the Women's Pairs. She is also an author, having recently published Murder by Natural Causes, a dark psychological thriller set in and around London's bridge scene. We began by asking if she'd had any interesting hands lately. I had what I think was an interesting hand yesterday. It was a very simple thing. My partner opened one no trump and we were playing a 12 to 14 no trump. And I was sitting there with a 12 count and I had four spades, four triple three, with queen 10 to four spades, 12 exact points, and honours in all the other three suits. Now, with that sort of hand, I don't think there's any point in bidding stamen asking for majors. So I didn't. I bid two no trumps, got 12 points. If partner's the top end of their range, I want her to bid three. My partner bids three no trumps. We made our lovely nine tricks, making our contract and the rest of the room in a nine-card spade fit we're sometimes going off three and sometimes going off four. That was an interesting hand in its funny little way. Very interesting. So I put it to my husband and I put it to another expert. Um, I said, what do you bid with my hand? And they both said, two no trumps. Because if you don't have some roughing values in dummy, why are you looking for the four forfeit? But it's something a lot of people miss. We were the only people in the room in three no trumps. Out of curiosity... Were other people in the room employing a 12 to 14 week no trump opening style or perhaps they opened it one spade? In the main, they were. In the main, they were. Okay, because that's ACL. So you might have a couple of people who would have to open a spade if they're playing a strong no trump. And those people are basically always going to end up playing in four spades. They kind of can't avoid it, really. But anybody playing a weak no trump, they can. And I just thought it was so interesting that the 5-4 spade fit plays so badly. And in three no trumps, you make your nine tricks. Were you playing with a regular partner? No, I wasn't. I was playing at my local bridge club, which is the Tunbridge Wells uh, Bridge Club. And they have a Wednesday afternoon duplicate, which after COVID was slightly in in sort of danger of dying because less and less tables were playing and it was getting to that point where you had two and a half tables and it all becomes rather depressing. And so I offered the club, I said, look, I'll come in, I'll play every week, I'll play with anybody who wants to play with me and at the end of the uh, duplicate, I'll just give a 15-minute question and answer session. So all I do is note down a couple of hands that I think are interesting and then I just I'll take questions from the room and um, anybody wants to raise anything that they had difficulty in, we discuss it. Now, it's, it's more we all learn together, shall we say, rather than me just telling everyone else what to do. But it's had a really big impact. The game is a, a lot of fun now. People really enjoy the Q&A at the end. M my view is always if you're entertaining people, then they'll generally learn something and take something away from it. So it's gone so well, I, I can't see us stopping anytime soon. Um, it's gone up from two tables, two and a half tables, to an average of seven to eight tables. So in, in bridge terms, I think that's a success. But so my partners are very random, if you see what I mean. And often I'm often playing with people for the very first time. Got it. And that in itself is interesting because if you're playing for somebody for the first time, after you do this a few times with different people, you begin to understand what are the essential questions that you must ask a partner when you've never played with them before. You know, like, what no trump do you play? And I find that because I've got it down to a sort of key number of things I need to know and a key number of things I want them to do or not do. So it's quite an interesting experience. In some ways, it's not unlike playing rubber bridge. You are slightly always just trying to make a very sensible decision. If I can, I'll, I'll aim to be declarer. You know, and that normally goes quite well. Who are a couple of your regular partners? I have two regular partners. One is my husband, Espen Erickson, 
And the other is Fiona Brown, who is a very top uh, women's player. I play a very similar system with the two of them. In a funny way, the only problem with such a similar system is sometimes you forget what do you play with one but not with the other. So I have to be a little bit careful with that. But I do like system. So my system file runs to about 75 pages. And I always read the whole thing through before I play a tournament, really just to refresh it. It's a bit it's a bit like prepping for an exam, to be honest with you. I go through it bit by bit and anything that I think I might easily forget, I have highlighted in yellow. So it is it, they're just like revision notes. That's how I'd describe them. And every time a new situation comes up that my partner and I haven't experienced before and we have to feel our way, afterwards we put it into our notes. And I think you'll find that most regular bridge partnerships do something very similar. So do you have a big chat about the hands after every game? Absolutely. I think that is absolutely key for anybody who wants to, who want, top class players, people who want to improve. If you're serious about bridge, you always go through the hands afterwards. It is, you know, bridge is a game of mistakes. You don't want to look at your successes. You want to look at where you mucked up so that you you don't repeat it. You know, the, the best bridge players in the world are not the ones who bid incredible grand slams. They're the ones that are like computers. They just grind through the hand and they make the least mistakes. What's your favorite bridge book or book that you most often recommend to players? Well, I've got two. So my favourite bridge book, which I think is the best bridge book of all time, and I'm sure other people will have given the same answers occasionally, is The Art of Being Lucky by um, Victor Molo and Nico Gardner. It's such a simple format. It's easy to follow. It's endlessly insightful. And there's like a little quiz at the end of each chapter so you can sort of see how you're doing. And that is a book I go back to over and over again. But another bridge um, book that I really love is one called World Class by Mark Smith. And the reason I love that is because it's each chapter is a biography of a different bridge player. And I find that fascinating, not to simply look at the technical side, although there is lots of technical stuff in there of of different hands they've played, but to know about the origin of the player, why they took out the game, you know, what they get out of the game. And it features some really, you know, it features all the top class players are in there. And I, I find that fascinating to know people's individual histories. What do you love most about Bridge? I'm going to make a slightly contentious answer. As a woman, I really enjoy beating men because I can't do it anywhere else. And I mean, obviously, there are lots of men in bridge I can't beat. But I think it is really nice to have an arena where it doesn't matter how old you are. It doesn't matter where you come from. It doesn't matter whether you're a man or a woman. You go to the bridge table and you're stripped bare. And uh, I really enjoy that. So if you feel that bridge is in many ways a level playing field, how do you feel then about the fact that there is a separate women's competition? I think it's a very interesting question and I think people have really tried to answer that. Or rather, I suppose I'm I'm posing the question back to you, which is that currently, I mean, if you were to take the top 100 players in the world, I don't know how many women you would find in that top 100, but it would be very few. And there's been a lot of work lately trying to provide an explanation for that. And I don't think that work is complete yet. I'm sure that a large amount of it is environmental because I think at the very point that you have to be specialising almost in bridge and nothing else, a lot of women have other responsibilities that get in the way of that. And you've also got a much larger pool of men playing bridge from which to pick the elite experts than you have women. But still, I don't think that covers the differences entirely. And there's a gap there, and I don't know what to put in it. I don't know how to answer that question. I would hope that over the next couple of generations, as long as bridge survives as a game, which is another question entirely, 
that that gap will close. You've made a lot of efforts to teach and to teach women in particular. And are you seeing any impact of that in terms of widening the field uh, and the pool of women players? Um, I'm not sure. I don't think I can take too much credit for that. The person who would take real credit for encouraging young women to be playing bridge in England would be Claire Robinson, because she is the squad leader for the under-26 women's squad. And she has put in a huge amount of work and effort in bringing them all forward. What I might say is I'd broaden that to say that if the game is to survive, young people have to be playing it. And in order for that to happen, you have to see bridge in secondary schools. I mean, I would like to make sure that all secondary schools in all countries have bridge clubs and chess clubs because they're such fantastic way to teach mathematics skills, to teach logic. They are safe arenas in which people can succeed and can fail, which I think is actually really important. And it's immensely good fun. I mean, that is the thing. There used to be this, um, I think it was a bridge almanac. And many years ago when I was a beginner, there was actually a quote in there from me, which I'll, I'll repeat if you don't mind. And the quote was, bridge is not a sex substitute. Sex is a bridge substitute. And in a sense, I still sort of stand by that. <laughs> Which is the most fun you can have. It's the most absorbing way you can spend three hours of your time. And one of the things I love about bridge as a hobby and a passion is that it removes you from yourself. If you've had a horrible day or you're unhappy about something, you go to the bridge table and you basically take a rest from whatever it is in your life that's bothering you because you're playing bridge. And I think all passions like that are kind of good for the soul. I mean, I'm a very obsessive person. So, you know, bridge is just perfect for someone like me to obsess over because, of course, it's this endless conundrum. It's like, you know, the TARDIS or an onion. Every layer you remove, the onion just gets bigger. And I I don't think there's any expert in the world who doesn't feel like that. Otherwise, there would be a case of, you know, If you've lost your passion for bridge, you've lost your passion for life. That's how bridge players feel about it. Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with plush care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. You're also a writer. I am. And writing involves layers of information and weaving things together. And it's essentially a narrative is a puzzle, especially when you're the one building the narrative. And you have just published a book. Can you tell us about your writing experience and a little about the book? Sure. So I've published a novel. It's called Murder by Natural Causes. And it is about a young female assassin who works for the gangster owner of TGR's Bridge Club. <laughs> it's a funny thing because it's, um, it, it's sort of meant to be, well, it, it's got identified as a thriller, but in many more ways, I think it's actually a form of satire. But satire doesn't have a big place in literature these days. 
hence it gets put down as a psychological thriller. So my assassin in there realises that if she carries on assassinating people, she'll probably one day just get assassinated herself. So she's seeking to stop doing that and just lead a normal life. And during the course of the book, eventually she learns to play bridge. You know, she works for this gangster owner of the bridge club and then she, she <laughs> decides that, to learn to play herself. But I think by the, that time I've hooked the reader in so much that they're prepared to tolerate my main character learning to play and, and it's not boring. Because if you were to try and describe bridge in technical terms in a novel, I think any non-bridge playing readers would fall asleep after about two sentences. So I really avoided that. I tried more to concentrate on the feeling of playing bridge, the passion of it, the wonderful highs, the crushing lows. And TGR's Bridge Club, it's one of the very few gambling bridge clubs left in London. And certainly, you know, 30, 40 years ago, there used to be a very high stakes rubber game where you could literally lose a few thousand pounds or more in a single afternoon. And in fact, when I first met my husband, he used to play bridge there. So I kind of, you know, I got to see what that was like and it just made a perfect setting for my book. I would like to add that as far as I know, no gangster has ever owned TGRs. That is pure fiction. I made it up. <laughs> But I think I'm right in saying that a few real people make their way as characters into the book, yes? Oh, yes, they do. I had to um, contact uh, several bridge players to say, <laughs> do you mind me taking your name in vain? And they were all very generous about allowing me to do that. So alert readers will definitely spot Zia Mahmood within the pages. There's also a mention of Robert Sheehan. And a mention of Nick Sanquist as well. I couldn't resist putting him in there. So all these people make little cameo appearances at the bridge table. And Bob Hammond. Oh, yes, Bob Hammond as well. You're absolutely right. And I very much thought, oh, I didn't ask Bob's permission. I hope he's okay <laughs> about that. But I, I very much thought that it would make bridge players chortle, you know. There's a few in-jokes in there for bridge players that I think will hopefully make them laugh, if nothing else. The bridge is very easy and straightforward in the book, so um, everyone can follow. Did you find that you could still play bridge when you were writing the novel or did it cannibalise the same part of your brain, the same energy that you needed? I think being an obsessive person, I was using the same energy because you have to obsess about a novel to get it written down. But I actually wrote it in the second lockdown. So it was over that kind of nine month period when no one could go out very much. And so to be honest, there wasn't all that much bridge to be had. I was still playing a bit of bridge online, but I had a lot of free time. And so I was doing a mixture of gardening, playing a bit of bridge online and writing my novel. And I kind of tended to write it almost in installments, like a sort of penny dreadful and it definitely reads like that. It could easily be serialised in some old-fashioned magazine. But I, it's very much an easy read. It's not high literature. It's more a ripping yarn that you would take on holiday with you. And because my main character is a clever, stone-cold killer, obviously she takes the bridge really easily. I was struck by that. <laughs> She's a natural. Exactly. <laughs> she has the right temperament. Do you think that there are certain temperaments that lend themselves especially well to being a bridge player? I definitely do. I think you've got to have that mixture of logic and aggression. And you've got to have, you've, you, you, it's quite good to have a little bit of nerves because they keep you very alert. But if you get too nervous, certainly my experience has been it stops me from thinking properly. And that can be a complete disaster. You're like a rabbit in headlights. So I think having, having a, a sort of temperament where you're very good at concentrating on one thing is very useful for bridge because you need to have very intense levels of concentration that you can sustain over long periods of time. Are there any mental tools that you deliberately employ at the table, perhaps to deal with a stressful situation or to regain focus? I think... One very simple tool to use at the table 
is simply to try and center yourself and actually not communicate too much. I don't know, I've been guilty of doing this myself, but I don't know if it's ever happened to you that opposition sit down with you at the table and they go something like, Oh, you bid a slam against me last time I played against you. Oh, or, oh, I don't, I don't like playing against you. And I always think to myself, it is just not necessary to say that. Keep it to yourself. We all sit down against people who, for some reason or other, tend to get good boards off us. And you've got to kind of, you've, I think it's much better to say nothing. Be polite, but you never give anything away. I think people who sit down and play as if they're made of stone, that that's what I would like to try and emulate without being unpleasant in any way to my opponents. I want to be very nice to my opponents, but in the end of the day, I do want to beat them. Thinking about one of your regular partners, what would they say is your greatest strength in the game? Well, Fiona Brown always says it's that I'm very calm. She says that I'm a very calm player and I don't always feel calm inside, so I take that as a great compliment that she says that. I would say that I'm definitely strongest in the bidding. Um, I like bidding. I like to bid a lot. One of the first good partners I ever played with, who is a chap called Jan Petter Svensson, he gave me a great piece of advice. He said, get in the bidding quick, get out the bidding quick. You know, don't wait around to be doubled. And that would be a kind of philosophy of how I bid. Obviously, when I've got a huge hand, I bid as slowly as possible, you know, on, on the basis that the slower you bid, the more you have. But if I'm, I like to try and punch in there when maybe it's not really our hand, but I'm just trying to steal it from the opposition. I had one hand several years ago playing the Lady Milne with Fiona as my partner. And um, in the Lady Milne, traditionally, the match between England and Scotland always ends up being pivotal as to who is going to win. And we were playing against Scotland, and I seem to remember we were slightly down at halfway. And I picked up a hand with, I mean, at most two points in it, but I think I had a seven-card spade suit. So my partner opened a club, and we weren't vulnerable as well. My partner opened a club. I bid a spade. The opposition bids confidently to four hearts and I immediately bid four spades. Somebody wrote it up saying that I bid it so confidently that the opponents, they didn't double and they didn't bid five hearts. And so that that was a, a key moment where the match went to us and, and the title went to us. So I always felt very pleased about that. And obviously vulnerability is key there. It's a lot easier to be very bold when you're not vulnerable against vulnerable. You've got a lot less to lose. Do you have a favorite tournament that you love to play? I think my favorite tournament is probably the Norwegian Bridge Festival, which takes place in the summer in Norway. And I like it for several reasons. The first reason that it takes place in Lillehammer, which is possibly one of the most beautiful places I've ever been. And it's always at the sort of same, more or less the same venue there. And next to the hotel we stay at, you walk out five minutes and you've got the most stunningly beautiful waterfalls. So it's a very beautiful place. The tournaments run really well. Everyone is really friendly. No one ever gets their system card out of their bag because no one ever asks to see your system card. No one ever calls the director. After every round, they have it. There's a Swiss tournament where they're quite short rounds. I think you play three boards. Immediately after the round, you get your results of the three boards you've just played. So you always know exactly how you're doing. One of the things I love about that tournament is that at the end, they hand out medals, right? It's just a yearly tournament, but lots of people walk away with gold, silver, bronze. And I think bridge players, they do like a nice cup or a prize or a, a medal. So, I've, you know, I've got a couple of medals from those tournaments and they really are, they're things I really love and things I'll keep forever. And I was struck by the fact that you actually noticed your surroundings in Lillehammer because my impression has been that a lot of bridge players go to these fabulous places, but they never even look outside the hotel. You're so right. That is absolutely true. They arrive at the airport, they turn up <laughs> at some convention centre and then they go back to their hotel. 
I think it would be fair to say that I've been to this tournament in Lillehammer probably 10 times. So it probably took me a couple of times before I went on a walk. But once I found that the walk was really nice, I kept going on it. And in any case, it clears the head. I think it's, um, it's quite easy. You know, when you're playing bridge, you need to do other things as well. It's pretty good to go to the gym or go on a walk or go for a swim and clear your head. Because otherwise, I think you, you, can, you, can, you can tire and stop performing. It really is an endurance test playing bridge tournaments. But I wouldn't be doing anything else. What else do you do to clear your head during a bridge tournament to stay sharp? I think going for a walk because going for a walk is the most you could is the best thing you can do just to get some fresh air and a little bit of gentle exercise. That that is the best thing you can do in a bridge tournament, especially when things aren't going well. Because I think during a tournament you often find that you're in a spiral, and that spiral can be going upwards. In which case. Whatever you do, it's right. You can do no wrong, but there can be times when it's going downwards as well. And when it's going downwards, you need to break the cycle. You need to stop, reset, restart. And just going outside in the fresh air, looking at something beautiful, remembering that bridge is only a game at the end of it and that no one will actually die if you don't do well at this tournament. That would be it, really. But certainly if there's a gym in the hotel, You'll normally find me there doing some gentle workout at a tournament as well. What's the funniest thing that's ever happened when you've been playing bridge? Okay, so I was playing in the uh, ladies' trials um, held at the Young Chelsea when it was in Barkston Gardens in Earl's Court. And I was playing with an old bridge partner of mine, Margaret Negren, who's a lovely, wonderful bridge player, wonderful friend of mine. And um, when you play trials like that, you have screens. So it means that you can't see your partner. So you can see one of your opponents, but not the other opponent and not your partner. And we were playing against two quite young girls. And the match wasn't going well for them at all. And at some point or other, there was a bit of a kerfuffle going on behind the screen, but I didn't know what was going on. And so the director went there and then he came out and he said to me, I'm, I'm sorry, but, but your opponent's crying. And then he said, and I'm, I'm afraid now your, your partner's crying too in sympathy. And he said, I- I've given them both a hug. Would you like a hug? And I said, don't you touch me. Because um, that, 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 I didn't want a hug from anybody. <laughs> but it was very, very funny. I mean, it's actually like, sorry, what? Everyone's crying on the other side of the screen? So, yeah, I think that's probably the funniest thing. Why were they crying? Well, because they'd obviously made some horrible mistake. So the opponent was crying and it made my partner cry too because she's so nice, you see. But I do think you haven't really played bridge until you've cried (laughs) either at the table or made it to the loo and cried there. I'm pretty sure most people have, have done something so dreadful or something so dreadful has happened to them that they've burst into tears, even if they managed to wait till they got home. Because otherwise you don't love the game enough. Well, what about you? When did you burst into tears? Oh, oh, that was terrible. So about 25 years ago, I was playing with a player, a very eminent player called John Collings. He's a sort of elderly English bridge player. He's not around anymore. And he was known for his absolute ferocity at the bridge table to his partner, he once said to me that if he wasn't being mean to his partner, he couldn't play. It's a very odd attitude. But anyway, so we were playing at the Brighton, the, the Brighton Pairs and um, we'd gone into the last session, line 21st, which was a very big deal for me because there were about 600 pairs playing there. So to finish in like the top 20 would have been incredible. But unfortunately, things didn't go well. John was shouting at me. That just made me make more and more mistakes. And so I was just sitting there sobbing at the table. And in between matches, he said to me, you're just crying to get attention. And the story doesn't even finish there because afterwards, obviously, we sunk to about halfway during the course of one session. And um, I couldn't even find anyone to give me a lift home back to London. So I had to go on the train by myself, still crying. And I thought to myself, Okay, I'm really unhappy. (laughs) And yet I still want to play bridge. 
And I think everyone has those moments when things haven't gone well. And yet you think still, I love this game and I still want to continue doing it. But that, that was quite funny. I, I don't think I don't think I've cried much in the last 10 or 15 years. So that's an improvement. So thinking about your protagonist, Scylla. Yes. Would she take on someone like John, do you think? Is that maybe the plot of your next novel? I think she'd just slip something into his coffee and um, that would be the end of him, really. One of the things <laughs> when I was writing my novel is I did not want to write about a female character in opposition to men in that sort of Charlie's Angels format, by which I mean this very glamorous, beautiful woman with perfect hair and perfect clothes who can sort of do a kung fu kick on a man and immediately he falls over dead. I just think that women can't fight men like that. You have to use stealth and subterfuge. Uh, you have to be skilled in the art of running away. And that's why Scylla uses poison as her weapon of choice, because traditionally poison is a woman's weapon. And I wanted to kind of bring that up to the modern day. I hope I succeeded. Helen, do you have a favorite bridge convention or gadget that you really like to play with your regular partners and even with your unregular partners? I think my favourite gadget is Jacoby Tuno Trumps. So when partner opens one of a major, you respond Tuno Trumps to show a good raise. I think it is incredibly effective. Obviously, you take away a natural bid, but you lose almost nothing and you gain the world. And whenever I sit down with somebody and I say, oh, do you play Jacoby Tuno Trumps? And they say yes. I always say to them, especially if it's the first time we've ever played, I say, can we play it in all positions at all times? If it is an available bid and I've opened one of a major, no matter what the opposition do, if Tuno Trumps is available, it's showing a good raise in my suit because that way it allows me to distinguish when partner has just raised based on, a, made a preemptive uh, raise just because they've got four or five Trumps and actually when they've got points as well. So I, I think Jacoby Tuno Trumps would be my absolute favourite convention. Is there a convention that you really dislike, that you groan inwardly when a potential partner suggests that you play it? I think Gerber. I, I think that's something I really hate, actually. I always, when people say, would oh, you play Gerber? I always say, no, no, no idea. Can't play that, sorry. My dad taught me to play bridge. And he used to play this terrible convention called Norman. Great name, though. So it was called Four Club Norman. And basically, if you bid four clubs at any point, it asked partner to show all their aces and their kings all at once. So four diamonds over it showed an ace or less. And four hearts showed exactly one ace and one king. Actually, that is the worst convention of all time for Club Norman. I don't know how my dad and I ever did any <laughs> slams using it. I, I don't know. But somehow we'd still sniff them out, even though that is the worst convention on earth. Yeah, for Club Norman. I think that's my choice. Sounds like Gerber on steroids. Yeah, it is Gerber on steroids. That's a perfect description of it. What's the best bridge tip or advice that you've ever been given or that you can share with our listeners? Um, I'm going to go for a Norwegian tip um, from my husband, Espen. And it's a kind of rubber bridge tip, but I think it applies in all situations. And it is this, when a man is down, you must kick him. Now, that sounds quite rude as if you're being really mean to your opponents, but it's not. It's actually quite respectful to your opponents because what he's saying is that if a man is down, he might get up again. Hence the kicking. And I think that's what you've got to say is that the match is not won until it's won. While there's still a board left and you don't know what's gone in the, on in the other room, you must still give it your all. The hands that people tend to make the most mistakes on are the first hands and the last hands. And so knowing that, that's when you should really, really concentrate. Helen, thank you so much for joining us. It's been great talking to you. It's been great, Helen. Thank you so much. 
Thank you so much for having me on your podcast. Sorry, partner, I've really enjoyed it. And that's the show. Many thanks to our guest, Helen Erickson. Thank you also to our Sorry Partner posse of listener supporters who make the show possible. Sorry Partner is produced by Catherine Harris with production assistance from Jay Gray and David Turner. Our theme music was composed by Jocelyn Starts and produced by Daniel Graboy with additional music by Elijah Meltzer. Send your bridge stories and comments to sorrypartnerpodcast at gmail.com or send us a voice message. And please consider joining the Sorry Partner Posse that helps keep us on the air, so to speak. You'll get ad-free episodes, a monthly newsletter, bonus audio from time to time, and other supporter perks. These links and a link to our discount offers and merch store are under the episode description in your app, on the website at sorrypartner.com, or wherever you like to listen. We'd love to hear from you, but be nice, or we'll call the director. Until next time, play well. May all your finesses be on side. And remember, as Helen says, when a man is down, you must kick him. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you, partner. Thank you, partner. (laughs) Bye. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.